Hi there, I'm Jordan Bonaparte, and on my show, Nighttime, I seek out and explore Canada's most fascinating stories. Nighttime stories are told using intimate discussions with those affected. They left you there. That was the last time anyone ever saw her. Jailhouse interviews with those held responsible. The context of that meeting would be some kind of mass shooting. And any other way necessary to get you to the heart of the story. You can join me by subscribing to Nighttime wherever you get streaming audio. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts, or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing very well, Tim, all things considered. How are you doing today? All things considered, great point. It's been a wild time in this country lately, Lance, and I feel like we might be a little tone deaf if we don't mention that at all. Uh, A lot of crime has been committed out there, and uh, what's really cool is there's a lot of web sleuthing going on and trying to identify the Capitol rioters, which I really appreciate all that web sleuthing. And what's really cool to find out about this web sleuthing in regards to the Capitol rioters, these people have been looking into the identities of some members of extremist organizations long before the Capitol riots, which is really reassuring to know that there are these individuals out there who are sort of computer superheroes trying to figure out how to make things safer for everybody. So tip of the old proverbial cap to them. Absolutely. And Lance, in this episode, we made a new friend. We speak to the host, one of the hosts of the Murderific True Crime Podcast. Her name is Byrne, and she's from the lovely state of Maine, not too far from us. And uh, we talk about a couple of missing persons cases from the state of Maine. That is true. Byrne is awesome, and she has a couple of cohorts with her for the Murderific podcast. She has her contributing writer and occasional guest host, Rebecca and Casey, who is the audio technician. They come together to produce this really cool show, which has a really cool logo of a hammer going into a skull uh, that I that I love. And it has this sort of... 80s vibe to it. We also geek out a little bit about Stephen King during this interview, which is always fun. It sure is. And so we talk about the disappearance of Kimberly Ann Moreau, and she went missing on May 11th, 1986 from Jay, Maine, and she was 17 at the time. And we also talk about a 19-month-old named Ayla Reynolds, who went missing from Waterville, Maine, on December 16th, 2011. And that's probably one of the darkest conversations I think we've ever had on these airwaves. Yeah, just to uh, prepare people for this, this is a, like you said, a 19-month-old infant who was last seen 
on December 16th, 2011 at 8 p.m. about. And uh, the chain of events that happens after that is truly um, gut-wrenching. We managed to get through the conversation, and it's very important that people listen to this because it is... We do manage to get through the conversation, and it's very important for people to listen to this because these are crimes that actually happen. These are human beings that actually do things like this to such an innocent being, this 19-month-old child. And I think uh, without getting too graphic, which we don't get very graphic, this sort of thing has to be brought out to the open. Yeah, it does. And it's very disturbing. And uh, but but I understand your point, Lance. And that's why we talked about it, because it is so disturbing. But you can't ignore some of these aspects of crime that uh, that we cover. This is Crawl Space. We're trying to do a well-rounded approach on crime and crime media and can't talk about crime or missing people without talking about a missing infant once in a while. And uh, it's very tragic. And uh, one of those conversations that uh, is tough to shake afterwards. So if you're interested in the Murderific podcast, check them out at Murderific. That's M-U-R-D-E-R-I-F-I-C dot com. That's their website where you can see all of their uh, previous podcasts. They have these little Murderific minis. And be sure to subscribe to them wherever you get your podcasts. And they've covered these cases a little bit deeper than we will do in this episode. So if you want to check out a little bit more on the case of Ayla Reynolds and Kim Moreau, Definitely subscribe to Murderific and listen to those episodes. Okay, everybody, thanks a lot for listening. Follow us on Twitter at CrawlspacePod. Thank you. Bernadette from Murderific, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. You're very busy with your work on Murderific. Um, my first question, uh, aside from many questions about the state of Maine, my first question is, how did you get the name for Murderific? And were you surprised when that wasn't taken? Because it's a really uh, brilliant uh, branding name. Uh, I was surprised um, that it wasn't taken. Um, it was actually my husband's idea. And I said, I do not like this name. I don't think that people are going to understand it. They're going to think that I'm making a joke out of murder. But, and some people have said that, <laughs> but that's not what it means. Um, but yeah, I'm surprised no one has it and no one had the website name either, which is really weird. <laughs> and you have a pr pretty great social media following. I think uh, we kind of uh, met each other, I guess, on Instagram. And uh, we also connected via Twitter. Um, you, you keep your social media pages pretty active. Is that just you or is that your co-host as well? No, my co-host, Casey, um, he is the editor. And um, my other guest that I have on a lot is my sister. Um, I do the social media and it's really fun to talk to the people that listen to the podcast. I mean, um, I love to interact with fans of the show. If someone talks to me, I will talk back. Yeah. So how, how is Maine, by the way? Because that's going to be my first question. What's going on in Maine? Um, Maine is cold right now. And um, a lot of the businesses are shutting down still, like the restaurants and people are just staying home. Even more so than normal. Well, that's good. That's good. Remain at home. 
and just ride this through and it'll be over as long as we follow the rules. I'm glad to hear that you guys are doing that. Yeah, but it's becoming like The Shining. <laughs> yeah, and speaking of The Shining, uh, oh, that's a good about, segue. <laughs> uh, what about Stephen King? You uh, you been to his house or what? I used to live in Bangor, so I would see his house every day. Um, the house is pretty amazing, but um, I used to work as a delivery person for a florist, and I actually got to go to the house one day, but I've never met him. Oh. Well, that that's too bad. But the house the house is pretty amazing, and it's very cool that you got to uh, visit that house. I I think he's turned that into or he's turning it into a museum, right? He's turning it into sort of like, uh, like a I guess it is like a real museum, like commemorative mu- museum. It's a museum for his work, and he's turning it into a writer's retreat, so people can go there to write. So I'm going to look into that for sure. Yes, and. There is a there is a cemetery in Bangor. It's called um, Mount Hope, and that's where a pet cemetery. Some of it was taped there, so that's interesting. It's a gorgeous cemetery in Bangor. Wow, as very far cool. as and... Stephen King facts, <laughs> <laughs> right? And uh, did he he moved out of Maine finally? Did, is that what happened? He moved to Florida, but his house still remains there. I think he has a house in uh, Lowell, Maine, which is near New Hampshire, and he has a Florida home also. Okay. What's your favorite uh, Stephen King uh, book or movie? Um, I like The Green Mile. I like um, The Shining, um, Pet Cemetery, And I remember when I was very, very young, I would read Carrie. And I grew up very religious. So I, I would like hide the book and like hide it under my bed. And I would be so scared at night. <laughs> yeah, that's a scary one. Yeah, yeah that, book, that book has some um, religious undertones. Right. I had uh, to hide are, the book from my mother. <laughs> your, was your mother Piper Laurie? Yeah, yes. <laughs> all right. Well, I, I could geek out on Stephen King in Maine all day, but I'm sure that's not going to be very interesting for our listeners to hear me do that for the 55th time this year. I was going to say one more fact. The um, the second It movie, one of the crimes in the movie um, some of the boys throw a homosexual over the bridge. And that's actually from a true crime that happened in Bangor. It's like a real crime. Oh gosh. Oh, a long time ago or. Uh... It was in 1984 and the man's name was Charlie Howard and three teens threw him off the state street bridge. And, and yeah, so the town dairy in the book is actually Bangor, Maine. So. And Stephen King based that that scenario on that crime because yeah it was published in 85 or 86 right yeah and the crime is 84 yeah so he took it he must have just seen that and 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 plugged that in that's pretty crazy i didn't know that wow wow well i can end the interview now i just learned a new thing about stephen king (laughs) and do you cover a lot of main cases i do i cover from everywhere but i try to do a lot of main cases um Okay, yeah, it makes sense to to stay local. Seems like um it can be easier, especially the deeper you get into um a mystery or missing persons case. It's actually harder because the closer you are to home, the more you have to get everything right because you will be called out on everything. One of the reasons I really got into true crime in the beginning was um in the late 2000s, I worked at a floral shop in Waterville, Maine. And one of the women there, her name was Cheryl Murdoch. And we were friends. 
and she actually was murdered in uh, 2006. And she was murdered by Shannon Atwood, who was her boyfriend, and they were supposed to go across country to pick up her daughter. And instead of that, he murdered her. And when the police found out about it, they went to the house and Shannon said that he was going to blow the whole house up. And when they arrested him, they realized his ex-wife was missing also. And his ex-wife's name is Shirley Moon Atwood, and she still has never been found. Wow. Okay, this is this is pretty uh this is pretty new uh to, to us. Um Yeah. Yeah. What what else about this? It's a lot of main murder cases that are really crazy. Right. So so th- this is um part of how and why you became into true crime, I take it? Yeah, I got obsessed with that. Also when I was really young, I was really into the Paul Bernardo, Carla Homolka thing. And it was because there was a gag order on it and I couldn't get any info. So that really, really intrigued me. And I was, I've been hooked ever since really. Interesting. And is this something that connects to what you do professionally as well, outside of the, the podcast and your own independent research? Um, what do you mean? As far as your profession, what you do for a job, is this, are you um, involved in anything that, it, that uh, re- requires investigation or, or research, even if it's not true crime? No, I'm actually a florist and a, um, I do weddings and funerals and set up for events. And um, because of COVID, it's been a very rough year. A lot of people aren't getting married and And so when I first started the podcast, it was once a month and then it became bi-weekly. And in February of 2021, it's going to be weekly because true crimes, true crimes, my real love. Oh, good. Glad to hear that. Um, Wow. So you're saying you, you knew Cheryl Murdoch? It's very, it's very weird to know someone who's been murdered. There's actually a, there's actually a murderer in my family also, that might have something to do with um, why I'm so intrigued by true crime. Yeah. If you want to unpack that a little bit, please feel free. (laughs) (laughs) No follow-up questions. I have someone in my family who actually murdered her husband of 37 years. And she had been domestically abused pretty much the whole marriage. And not like a little bit abused, but like one time he took her, in the woods. And he said, here's a grave that I've buried for you, that I've dug for you. And this is where I'm going to put you when I kill you. So one day he was sleeping after years and years and years of abuse. And she shot him three times. And then this is a woman who's 55 years old. And then she cut him up in 17 pieces. And this is in Maine. And then she went to court And she was found guilty of manslaughter in 2001, and she only served six years, most of those in a psych ward. Wow. And how close were you to her? I was not close to her, but um, close enough to know all the details, you know, more more than what was released, I should say. And the reason why she served six years was because the crime was... um... Uh, maybe temporary insanity or? No, they thought that she had some mental disorders because of the abuse over so many years. She was a very, very meek, mild-tempered woman who did this, which was unbelievable. 
And even weirder, she had a she had many sisters and brothers, but after she committed the crime, a couple days later, one of her sisters dropped by to see her. This is very rural Maine. And this sister hadn't seen her in like 10 years. And she had a premonition to go visit her sister. Well, that is really strange. Hey, have you talked about this on your podcast? Yeah, Jeez. it's under an episode called, um, it's Vela, Go uh, say Vela Gogan, and that's her name. That's her first name? Yep, her name's Vela Gogan. Vela Gogan. Oh, wow. Um, okay, so she's uh, in a psych ward for six years. What? How long has she been out? In 2001, she went in for six years. She actually got out a little bit before the six years ended. So 2007. And have you had any contact with her? No. Since, since then, no. Okay, <laughs> yeah, I, did, I did, didn't expect you to say yes, but I was just curious. And though Maine has a very low crime rate, um, half of the murders of women are because of domestic abuse. So if a woman dies, more than 50% of the time it's her husband or partner. Yeah, un unfortunate. What do you attribute that to? Is it a combination of a few things? Um, I, I really don't know. Uh, there's a lot of isolation in Maine. There's not a lot of resources for women to reach out and get help. And a lack of police understanding and reaction. Thank you for listening to this fantastic show on the Crawl Space Media Network. We want to talk to you about another show on the Crawl Space Media Network. If you like true crime, we've got something a little bit different for you with Empty Frames. We cover art crime, and mostly an art heist that happened in Boston, Massachusetts in 1990. Not any heist, Tim. We're talking about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist that happened on March 18, 1990, and it is considered to be the most successful and valuable heist in history. That's right. Those nasty thieves stole works from Vermeer, Degas, and Rembrandt, and there is currently a $10 million reward for the return of the stolen artwork. Not a single piece of evidence has ever been retrieved from this heist, so dive into this mystery with us in Season 1. And in Season 2, we tackle other art crimes and other moments in art culture. We chat with the owners of an antique store who found that famous stolen de Kooning painting. We discuss a stolen da Vinci with our good friend Turbo Paul Hendry. And in season three, we dive back into the Gardner heist. That's right. We open the doors back up to the Gardner heist in season three, and we even introduce a brand new theory that is very far removed from the current local mobsters and organized crime theory. So subscribe on Stitcher Premium, on Spotify, YouTube, or Apple Podcasts to listen to Empty Frames, an art crime experience. All right, well... Let's discuss a uh, a case from Maine that uh, that you have covered on your podcast, um, and it is a missing person by the name of Kim Moreau. Can you tell us a little bit about the disappearance of Kim Moreau? So when I started the podcast, I was just researching um, different subjects that weren't really close to me, but when I did the Kim Moreau case, I actually got to talk to her sister and her father, and that really changed how I do the podcast. It, it humanized it. It also makes you see the total devastation to the families when somebody goes missing and when there's no closure. Um, Kim Morrell went missing in 86. She was 17 years old um, from Jay, Maine, and she was never seen again. Whereabouts is Jay, Maine? I don't know how to explain where Jay is. All right. I'll, let me rephrase it. 
is J Maine close to the shore, like co- close to the coast of Maine, or is it more inland? It's inland. Okay. For sure. It's for sure. It's a very, very small town. So um, on the night of May 10th, um, Kim was going to go to her junior prom, but her and her boyfriend, Mike Staples, got into an argument. And so she decided not to go to the prom. And she went out with one of her friends, Rhonda. And when she got in the car, there were two 25-year-olds in the car. And their names were Brian Edmond and Darren Joundry. And while they were hanging out, um, apparently they did some drinking and um, some cocaine was involved. But Kim never came home that night. Her parents were frantic. Um, they went to the police and the police said, um, your daughter probably ran away. You have to wait 48 hours, which is the normal response for um, 86. And then the the family did their own research. They found out who Kim had been hanging out with that night. And then there were different stories from the very, very beginning. Um, the main story ended up being that Brian Enman said that he dropped Kim off at 345 on May 10th, like a half a mile from her house, which is pretty ridiculous. A 17 year old's not going to walk home alone in the dark, half a mile from her house. Also, Kim Moreau is very afraid of the dark. Right. And he didn't go, he didn't drive the half mile to her house at 345 in the morning. He dropped her off on the corner on the street. Or something. He said that she wanted to be dropped off, which probably isn't accurate. And this was her boyfriend? No, um, she didn't go with her boyfriend to the prom. She, yep. So she ended up driving around with her friend, Brenda, and then these two other men. Oh. Okay. And as I said, they couldn't get any straight answers. Um, Eventually, Brian, one of the men, said that Kim and himself had consensual sex, which to me is just a weird comment to say. If you have sex with someone, you don't say, oh, we had consensual sex. It's just a weird comment to make. Yeah, it feels a little preemptive. And who who is it that said that? Brian Enman. He was one of the men in the car that day. Yeah, and he, he volunteered that information. He did eventually, yes. So after the two days, the 48 hours, um, Kim Rose family went back to the police and they wanted Kim put in the missing person database. They were very busy that night and Kim wasn't even put in the database for four and a half months to begin with. So it was pretty bungled from the very beginning. And then the police were so focused on the fact that she ran away that they didn't even look at the car that Kim Morrell was in for 18 years. 18 years later, they looked at the car, which doesn't make any sense, but that's, that's exactly what happened. And, and when you say they, you mean the local law enforcement or? The authorities, yes. Apparently, they had problems with J, the J police department. They had more help from the state police department. So I believe it was the state police department that looked at the car. And they've been, I mean, her father, Richard, has put thousands of flyers out. If you go through J Main right now, there are still flyers. There's still flyers up for Kim Morrell. People know who she is still. And in 2015, there was a search on Brian Enman's property, which was a five-acre property that he used to own, and they didn't find anything. So police are still doing searches. They're still getting tips, but um, there's just no closure for the family at all. No one's ever been arrested. Brian's never been arrested, not named either. 
Um, he really wants to be left alone. He said he's always said that he's innocent. Was there anything done as far as the investigation is concerned by law enforcement beyond that 48 hour period? What I mean, did they question anybody? I don't. I mean, they may have, but nothing's ever come from it. Richard's done all the work. Like her dad has interviewed hundreds of people. And he's also kept in contact with that person of interest himself for years and years. Yeah. And her dad is really, he's, he's an elderly gentleman now. So he would like to get some closure. Kim's mother died. And also the night that Kim left, she came home. She saw her sister, Karen. She said, I'll be right back. And when she left, she left her purse at home. She left her coat at home. She left all of her possessions at home. She wasn't running away. Right. Yeah. That seems pretty obvious. So she got into an argument with her boyfriend, was supposed to go to the junior prom that night, ended up not going to the prom with him because of the argument. So when she left her house, she didn't bring her purse. And I take it she wasn't wearing like a ball gown or something like that. No, she didn't go to the prom. She just, she basically was hanging out with these guys drinking and doing a little bit of drugs. Was this something that was common for her or in her family? The drug use her father didn't know about. I would say she was a social user. And I also think that cocaine was maybe more, maybe was a little bit different back in the 80s. They, people didn't really know the danger so much. Sure. So um, Rhonda Breton, the one who, her friend that was in the car, she ended up becoming an alcoholic and um, had drug addiction issues. She lost her children and she ended up dying in a hit and run in 2009. Darren Joundry, the other person who was with Kim, has always denied involvement. The one they searched his property. He just flat out says he wasn't involved. Um, and the other person in the car um, has been in and out of been in, in and out of jail for drug offenses. Um, so basically, the theories are, you know, Kim was in the car that night. Her dad believes that maybe she overdosed. And maybe they hid the body and covered up and made up a story. Or, you know, something happened with Brian Edmund. She may have been alone with him in the car because everyone else was dropped off and he may have wanted to have sex with her. And she said, no, maybe there was a fight, but we're really never going to know. And I mean, you, it's been 34 years. You mentioned her sister, Karen. Did she have any other siblings? She did have another sister, yes. But Karen's always blamed herself because when Kim came home that night, Karen blames herself for not looking to see who was in the car, not telling Kim to stay home. She really blames herself. And no, Kim leaving and staying out all night had never happened, ever. And and the family dynamic was, was pretty good? There was no signs of any sort of uh, physical or emotional abuse? No, they're all very loving. Kim was well-adjusted in school. She was a cheerleader. She was going to be in the Miss Maine competition. They were a very loving family. What a senseless tragedy. And uh, so if you have any information in Kim Moreau's disappearance, please contact the Maine State Police at 207-743-8282. There's also a Facebook group for Kim, and it's called Kimberly Moreau, Missing from J. Maine. Damn. And no, no leads, nothing like that. Nothing that has ever 
been real close and just didn't pan out. No, police have really been focused on uh, that one suspect for years. And I mean, back then before surveillance and things like that, it's really hard to know what happened, <laughs> I believe. Yeah, I mean, at least they were searching for for her on that Edmonds property in 2015. So they they must have gotten some, you know, there must be some activity in this case um, behind the wall of law enforcement that uh, that we're not exactly seeing. But I'm I'm glad there someone's still working on it apparently to some degree. Right. Just one more quick question about it. This this Edmonds uh, has he been in trouble since? Do you have any idea if he, if he had some some record? Uh, after 1986 he has not been in trouble at all so he's the only one uh, of those three people that were with kim that night um that didn't have either uh drug offenses or issues with drugs uh, after the disappearance or at least legal issues yeah yeah no matter how far you run from them childhood tragedies have a way of catching back up with you so is true of elite scuba diver veronica west who's about to encounter something unexplainable at the bottom of the ocean something that will draw her back to her home on Sinclair Island, Maine. There, she'll lead a dangerous rescue mission to the bottom of the Bay of Fundy, home of the world's largest tides, and something horrific down in the depths. Listen to Narcosis, the latest horror fiction show on Realm's premier horror channel, Undertow. Narcosis is available now. Search for Undertow or Narcosis wherever podcasts are served. Kickoff for Super Bowl 34. The Titans-Rams 2000 Super Bowl. An instant classic. Hours after the game, two men were stabbed in the street. Accused of being in the middle, the greatest linebacker in NFL history. Ray Lewis and two friends are charged with murder. The nation's eyes were glued to their televisions. The trial concluded and the verdicts came back. Not guilty. What you can learn from all this is that big cases make for big mistakes. Look what happened in O.J. Simpson. And look what happened in Ray Lewis. Lewis went on to have a Hall of Fame career. But questions around that night in Atlanta still remain. So what do you think they're hiding? They know what happened. They know exactly what happened. After 20 years, it's time to get to the bottom line truth. From Tenderfoot TV, I'm Tim Livingston. And this is The Raven. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For ad-free listening and early access, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus on tenderfootplus.com. Listen to the 48 Hours Podcast for shocking murder cases and compelling real-life dramas from one of television's most watched true crime shows. Go behind the scenes of each episode with award-winning CBS News correspondents and producers in Postmortem, a weekly deep dive. Listen to 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts. All right, and uh, we'd like to talk a little bit about the disappearance of a child from Waterville, Maine, named Ayla Reynolds. And this uh, this is a, something we don't cover very often on our shows, but... You have covered this case, and um, Ayla was a 19-month-old little girl when she went missing in December of 2011. Can you tell us a little bit about this case? Yes. Um, so Ayla was born in 2010. Her parents were Trista Reynolds and Justin DiPietro, and Ayla was a surprise pregnancy. They weren't a couple, so they hooked up, and then um, Trista got pregnant. 
And Justin actually denied that he was the father for almost the whole pregnancy and after. And they had no clear-cut custody arrangement. Justin didn't want anything to do with the child. Justin's mother did. So eventually, um, Ayla started going to the home. And by the home, Justin lived with his mother. And during some of those visits, Ayla started coming home with mysterious injuries. She would come home with black and blues. And then Trista started taking photos of that. Um, One time, Justin said that Ayla got hurt by falling in a ball pit at Chuck E. Cheese. And at that time, there was no ball pit at that Chuck E. Cheese. So it was a made up, made up story. And days before Ayla went missing, Ayla's arm was broken. Justin said her father, he, she was visiting him. And Justin said that he fell and that he landed on Ayla's arm and that it broke. But she had a spiral fracture, which is usually caused by the twisting of an arm and cannot be caused by someone falling on the arm. The break can only be caused by pulling. But unfortunately, Trista, she was a very, very loving mom, but she had some addiction issues and she had to go to rehab. When she went to rehab, she just left her child with her parents. And then when Justin's mother got wind of it, then she tried to get custody. And then the main Department of Health and Human Services placed Ayla and Justin to preach in Justin DiPietro's care, despite him never having custody of his daughter. And Ayla had never spent the night at Justin's home. But Ayla was now in his care. And that was because of uh, Trista's drug use? Yeah, because she was she had to go get help for her addiction issues. And because and of that, Ayla was in Justin's care. There was no possibility of her being in Trista's parents' care? She was in their care, but the state took her away and put her with Justin. Correct. And then Ayla's mother, Trista, got out of rehab and she filed paperwork to regain custody on December 15th, 2011. And nobody knew about this. Justin didn't know. Justin's parents didn't know. And that was intentional, you think? Um, Probably. She probably wanted to keep it quiet. And, uh, this Justin DePietro, has he gotten in trouble uh, since this? After all of this, um, he did, he was arrested for domestic abuse of his girlfriend. So yes. But the okay. night of December 16th, um, Trista had called Justin. She did ask to speak to Ayla, but he would not put Ayla on the phone. And he said, you will never see your daughter again. And this was The day that Ayla went missing, she had been in her father's care for about two months. And then that brings us to December 17th. Justin called 911 in the morning. He said that his daughter was missing. She was wearing green polka dot pajamas with daddy's princess on them. Two other people were in the home that night besides Justin. Oh, more than two. Justin's girlfriend, Courtney. Courtney's daughter, Justin's sister and her daughter, there, were, there was a lot of people in the home that night. And Justin said he put Ayla in the crib at 8 p.m. And when he woke up, she was gone. They also were in the same bedroom. Uh, unbelievable. Yeah, I'm not very familiar with um, how soon children can walk. But at 19 months, is that, do, do children walk at 19 months? Yeah, they, they'll walk, but they won't be incredibly stable as they walk. And uh, I don't think they can, like, 
open a door, uh, unlock a door and walk outside like that. Yeah, the bedroom was also in the basement. She would have had to go upstairs and seems very unlikely. Okay. Uh, DiPietro, Justin said someone must have abducted Ayla from the home while everyone was sleeping. And he said that she could not get out of her crib on her own. Well, after this, it was the biggest search in Maine's history. I mean, they right. searched everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. Another search was, and this was in the winter. So even when all the snow mounted, they did more searches. Right. And, uh, and there's a 911 call that Justin DiPietro made. Yeah. He sounds, he sounds pretty unemotional in it for sure. Yeah. It seems like they did some statement analysis on it. Um, looking now on a, um, on a website, awesomejelly.com. Um, but yeah, it's a, uh, some statement analysis analyzing the uh, 911 call made by Justin DiPietro. Definitely seems a bit suspicious. What parts? I mean, just the whole circumstances and the fact that this was a scripted call and is deceptive is, is what the conclusion is. <laughs> Correct. Um, there was um, reports there was a party that night, but I don't think that was proven. This is the part that's a, a little bit upsetting. I think the police in Waterville were very um, ill-equipped to handle this case. They weren't used to a murder case. They waited seven whole days to even search the home where Ayla Reynolds lived with her dad. Why? Why? I mean, I can... Don't know. I can understand you not being equipped for a murder case, but if if the, if the toddler's missing and the father says maybe she was abducted, why aren't you searching the location? I mean, I'm not a cop, but don't go to the location where the dad said she was abducted from? Yeah, I think everyone rallied around the family in the beginning and just tried to help Ayla. It took a little bit for everyone to be like, hey, this story doesn't sound right. But yeah, seven days. And um, that's seven days for somebody to get rid of evidence if they wanted to um, hide evidence. And was there any evidence when they searched? Was there any reports of evidence? There was over a cup of Ayla Reynolds' blood and vomit close to Justin's bed in the basement. The blood was also on Justin's slippers, a doll, in the car, in the car seat, on the bedroom wall, on the sofa, a fan cord in the basement, a blanket. Ayla's blood and saliva was on the shoes of her father, Justin. Justin's mattress and sheet covers were missing. That's the evidence. Jesus Christ. Really? What, what was his answer for that? Why, why is all this blood everywhere? DiPietro said that he thought all of this blood was from Ayla's vomit, that she got sick in the bedroom once. That was his reasoning for is why that, all this blood evidence was there. Is that common, that a child gets sick to the point where they're throwing up blood? No, no. Okay. A, blood, a blood analysis said that the blood spatter was created by intense projectile vomiting from blunt force trauma. And again, the flat sheet on Justin's bed was missing and has never been found. And there was a new set of sheets on the bed that he recently bought. Had he been drinking that night? You said there was a party? There may have been a party, so I, I really don't know. I believe that Justin had to do a polygraph and he said that he smoked it. Those were his words, but I don't really know the results of that. 
And then Trista, Ayla's mother, has always been very vocal saying that Justin is not telling the whole truth. She's gone on news shows. She's publicly blamed Justin. Um, Justin didn't talk to the media for months and months and months. And again, there was one time after uh, Trista's, Trista's held vigils for her daughter, her missing daughter. But there was one time where Justin was at the courthouse because of this domestic abuse against his girlfriend. And Trista showed up there. I don't know if you've seen this footage, but it was on the news and they had like a wild confrontation on the street. And it was just recorded for the news media. It was crazy. Sorry, I have a real quick question about his uh, charge for domestic abuse. You said that he was he was actually charged with domestic abuse afterward yes for his girlfriend yeah okay so he was never married after that he just had a girlfriend who reported that he was beating her correct and justin actually moved to los angeles and then ayla was pronounced dead i think in 2015 but only so that trista could follow up with some civil lawsuits against the family and that's in process right now actually been slowed down because of covid so wait wait who's who's processing the the civil cases trista ayla's mother filing claims against justin's family okay yeah and it says ayla was declared uh dead legally deceased on uh may 30th 2017 okay that must be tough for uh for a family to to do yes i think the mother wants some sort of justice um no matter what that looks like there, I have a quote from Maine officer Steve McCausland. And during a news conference, he said, quote, we have said from the very beginning that the three adults inside that home know more than they have told us. They've basically said this family is lying. Okay. So aside from Justin DePietro, who else was in the home again? His girlfriend was there. Um, his sister was there. And in the beginning, the grandmother said, that she was home. Justin's mother said that she was there. And a few days later, she said that she had lied and that she wasn't in the home. And I don't know if she did that to protect her son, like to give him an alibi saying, yes, I was here, but she did lie. Is anybody giving the impression that they are looking for her still or that they're looking for whomever abducted her? Whoever went into the home while they were sleeping, went down into the basement, took a child who I guess had been previously sick and just disappeared into the wind. Has anybody ever put up a a reward for her or anything like that? I do believe there's a there is a reward. There was a reward fairly early from from the townsfolk of Waterville. But the police are very focused on the family. They believe that they are lying. And there are lots of people in that house. Some, somebody is lying. Nobody walked into a house full of people, walked downstairs, grabbed a child, took her, and then nobody can find her. Justin is never, he, he's not into media interviews. He hides from them. He doesn't want to talk about his child. And I know if I had a missing child, I would be on every podcast, on every news show. I would be talking about it 24-7. And he has no interest. I just want to be clear again about the odds of this happening. I, I looked up Waterville, Maine, and in 2010, the population was 15,722. So the expectation is to believe that somebody picked this house without any other abductions going on in that area at that time, 
picked this house somehow knew that this child was there for no reason, no ransom, went into the basement, (laughs) pulled a child out of a crib, and then just, again, vanished. I mean, come on. It's like a much less uh, believable version of the Madeline McCann case. Yeah, um, which which you can actually believe, especially now that they they've named a suspect who isn't a family member. Right. It's very it's very unlikely. It's very suspect. All we can hope for is that, you know, they find Ayla one day. Have you spoken with or reached out to Justin or any member of the family? I did reach out to Trista, but I couldn't get any comment from her. A weird fact, uh, Justin's family without Justin, they still live in this home. They still live in the same home. I've driven by it. I've looked at the home. Um, and there are lots of other homes around it. If somebody abducted a child, that would, somebody would have seen that. Jeez. In Maine, there's lots of places to hide bodies for sure. Yeah, it seems like there was a search in, that ended up in Massachusetts, um, but was not uh, baby Isla. Um, yeah, do you know any other searches that uh, that took place maybe near the residence? There were many searches um, in in lots of different water around the area. Yep, it was very extensive, very expensive also. And I don't think the police have given up hope but in that case. I'm sure there are some cases that they're just going to keep trying, keep working on, and Ayla's one of them. Is there any account for Justin's whereabouts afterward? Um, any, I guess sightings of him like the the next day or uh just mileage on his car or or anything like that i don't know any of that information but i have thought about it so much i if he went on the interstate and there would have been record of that um i mean there's surveillance everywhere maybe not in waterville but um yeah i think about that a lot apparently not so tragically frustrating and if you have any information on the disappearance of Ayla Reynolds, please call the Maine State Police, 207-743-8282. And you said Justin is in L.A. now. Is he, like, trying to be an actor, or what's his uh, deal out in L.A.? I imagine he wanted to go somewhere where nobody would ever know who he was. Yeah. Probably pretty easy to uh, disappear into the, um, into the scene out there with so many people. Open door policy for him to come on the show, or even uh, even Trista. Um, what a what a horrible, senseless, frustrating tragedy. And I do want to stress again, Trista was a very loving mom. She was a good mother. She just had a hard time, and she did what she had to do to take care of it. And then this happened to her child. And Justin's not with the girlfriend who filed charges. I don't believe so. Yeah. And that girlfriend was the same girlfriend who was there that night. It was. Hmm. So there's an, a door, an open door there, perhaps, for her to talk. She's probably terrified of him, though. <laughs> I imagine. Just uh, speculation, but. Yeah, I, it's the same story, right? Like the abusive, the, the abusive father, the abusive husband or the abusive man continues to do it until he kills somebody. And then everyone's like, well, how do we catch him? It's like, OK, well, how do you prove it? Uh, I mean, how many times is this going to happen? A, a child is just over a year old like 19 months no one saw this coming i guess hopefully he doesn't have any more children that's all i can say